0: Okay, time for our continued series in Daniel, <clears throat> and we're looking at Daniel chapter 7, and we'll only read verses uh, 9 and 10 this morning, as we sort of go back and we try to finish off the rest of chapter 7, we sort of looked at chapter 8, and um, and we're, we're continuing the, the rest of chapter 7 as we have looked at the various beasts, and, and the uh, little horn, and what he represented, <clears throat> and so I want to give you a bit of a recap, and then we're going to look at, the coming judgment um, upon these and how it leads to or how, how the events that lead up to that final judgment or what we call Armageddon um, and how it eventually got to that. So Daniel chapter seven, verse nine says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from, him, from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you for its purity. We thank you that... You inspired men of old to write these words down exactly as you wanted it. And we thank you that we have that word in our hands even today, translated into our language faithfully, that we can look at and grow through and understand how wonderful you are. So we pray for your presence in our lives. We pray for your work uh, within our hearts as we seek to understand your word more. May we be inspired, Father, by it. Each and every day of our lives, draw us closer to yourself and help us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me give you a bit of a recap. The church has been raptured. The ten kings, um, represented by those ten horns of that final beast, are ten democratically governed nations that have formed an alliance or a confederacy. The Antichrist has arisen. And has come riding on a white horse he has presented himself as the messiah to the world especially to all the religions that are waiting for a messiah which are pretty much all the major ones he is and will be a charismatic figure that will mesmerize the world which will have by then turned its back on god and the bible and will be ripe for deception or ripe right to be deceived. And Bob, the Bible actually says that God will send them a strong delusion that they will believe a lie. This uh, Antichrist, this beast, um, will make a deal or a, a covenant or an agreement with Israel, uh, allowing her to rebuild her temple and to offer her protection and security, including all the nations around her, <clears throat> and they will sign that deal and i suppose the other nations will sign it as well Uh, but after three and a half years he will renege on that deal and he will enter into that the holiest part of that temple that they build stop the sacrifices from being offered anymore to god and he declares himself to be god his right hand man will be known as the second beast in the book of revelation also known as the false prophet, will be a religious leader who will do signs and wonders to convince the world of the authenticity of this particular fellow as the Messiah and as the Christ. He will set up an image of this false Christ in the temple itself, and he will demand all people worship him and his image. Um, and no doubt, he'll be available to be see, to see on TV and web and every every other place, you can probably see him, and to weed out the deniers and those who are resisting uh, the worship of this man, the Antichrist will demand that all people um, have the uh, Antichrist name, number, or symbol uh, imprinted on their forehead or on their in their right hand, and failure to do so will result in them not being able to actually live. In other words, they won't be able to buy or sell. At that particular time, Israel realizes something is wrong and they experience a revival with many of them turning to Christ and realizing that he is the true Messiah. And and God raises up 144,000 men, um, described for us in the book of Revelation as well, who will become evangelists of their day. And Moses and Elijah will be literally brought back uh, to Jerusalem to witness against um, the beast. And they will turn people and and convince many of the Jews to follow Christ and many of them will turn to him. The beast will then persecute Israel and seek to destroy every believing Jew um, and all that come to Christ around the world during this time. And we looked at Um, a passage in uh, the Bible, which speaks about uh, his preferred method of killing, which was beheading and how during the tribulation period, those who were beheaded for their witness of Christ or for believing in Christ were told, wait for a little while until the number of your brethren are fulfilled. Towards the end of the uh, tribulation, God will unleash huge plagues upon the world in greater and greater judgments, and will destroy much of the world and its oceans. In fact, um, the the Bible say, even says that the, most of the, uh, the seas will be destroyed, the land will be burned up, there'll be plenty of things that will go wrong during that time as God pours out his wrath upon the world for trying to kill all the believers and for following after a false God. Many people Billions will die literally from the plagues and from the wars that will come because the Antichrist will want complete uh, control over all nations of the world. Um, And we see that a good percentage of the world's population will die either from the wars or from these catastrophic um, uh, plagues that will come. And it will be, as the Bible describes, the worst time the most climactic time that the world has ever endured. And also, during this time, we discovered that the fallen angels, which have been held in the bottomless pit, will be released into the world, causing absolute mayhem, while their leader, the angel called Abaddon or Apollyon, will be the force behind the Antichrist and the final apocalyptic army that will be assembled. He will cause the armies of the world to head towards Jerusalem to destroy it for all-out war, and they will assemble themselves in the valley of Megiddo. But in doing so, they will be, or have been, inspired by the devils, which have not only inspired them, but possessed many of them to assemble in that place because Christ and the armies of heaven will return to that place. You see, Christ has to enter into Jerusalem triumphant as the King. If you remember, most of you understand that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a white colt, and they were waving palms at him and, and hailing him as uh, the 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 son of David. Okay, what they were saying was when they were doing that was they were proclaiming him to be the rightful heir of King David and the coming Messiah. Um, well, while those few did that. While there are a number that did that, the majority of Israel rejected Christ. And so he still has to enter triumphant. And so he will do that during uh, this particular time or at his return. Okay. So where are we at now? We find ourselves, as we go back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we come at a time where judgment is about to come. So where we're the Antichrist is in power, the false prophet is in power, the, the devils are in power, much of the world is under their control. It's, there's mayhem and there is evil going on. Every believer is being persecuted and, and killed for their faith. Those who are even trying to help them I won't be able to, will be, will be uh, killed as well. And, and Daniel chapter seven verse nine says, "And I beheld till the thrones were cast down." And the Ancient of Days did sit, that's in judgment, whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning uh, fire. Um, A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. Thousands thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. So we're speaking about judgment here. So we're speaking about The war has occurred and then Christ sits down on the throne to judge the nations. And Christ has told us already that all judgment has been given to him by the Father. And so when we see the description that it says that it gives of us of the ancient of days, whose garment is white like snow, his hair of his head is like pure wool, he's strung like a fiery flame. That's a description of Christ, literally, because Christ is both God and man and when you see other descriptions of Christ in Revelation, they match this. So the thrones being cast down is very descriptive of what occurs at the end. Think of all the thrones that are set up. There are 10 kings or the rule of 10 kings that have that, that have come together. Well, their rule is now going to come to an end. The rule of the beast, who has been in power for about seven years, will come to an end. There's the rule of the devil's demonic principalities, which have existed for thousands of years, of which this final ten-nation you know, assembly and the Antichrist is the culmination of, uh, will also come to an end. But it's existed for thousands of years. And if we've, as we've looked at Daniel, we've seen the glimpse of that. We've seen the snapshot of you know, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans— that was all inspired by the devil and ruled by uh, the devil and his cohorts that is also going to come to an end after thousands of years once and for all so what i'd like to focus on today is understanding that there are and there will be a war on two fronts two fronts there will be a war on two fronts and in two realms one spiritual, and the other will be physical. One will be in heaven, one will be in this world. Just as there was an angelic rebellion um, at the beginning where a third of the angels fell uh, in heaven, there was also a fall of mankind on the earth, and mankind himself has been in rebellion against God from the very beginning. So there will be a final judgment in both heaven and, and on earth. And I'd like us to look at that today as our main topic before we get this whole description of the coming of Christ, what that war will be like, and then how that will ensue, and the details the Bible gives us about that. Before this final war, the one we call we commonly call, or commonly is referred to as Armageddon, there must first be a heavenly war. Now, why do I say that? It's because the the fallen angels who were created to exist in heaven, in the heavenly realm, still abide there for the most part, except those who chose to live on the earth or chose to infiltrate the earth and people's lives separately. So the ones that are still living in heaven have to first be expelled. So devils, or otherwise known as demons or evil spirits, can exist in one of two places. The first place they can exist is the place they were created for, which is the heavenly realms or the heavenlies, as the Bible calls it. This is, does not mean that they just because they're in heaven that they're somehow in front of God's throne, dancing around and you know and causing mayhem there. No, no, no. When we think of heaven, we need to understand that heaven is a lot bigger than just God's throne or God's where God is is um, is ruling from. It's a huge area. If the world is big, and we think about us in Australia and think about Italy, when we stand here, we don't automatically see Italy. We aren't automatically in its in Italy's uh, uh, dimension or it's close to it. We can't see what's going on there. We don't influence it. The same occurs in heaven. Heaven is absolutely huge, if not bigger than the earth. It might be as big as the as the universe. We don't even we don't even know how big it actually is. So. When we think of heaven, we need to understand that there is one part of heaven that is God's God's throne room, God's temple, God's God's um, God's, where, where God rules from, but it's a huge expanse, and the devils aren't necessarily there at the same time. So in heaven, these devils though can exist in two one of two states. One is they're moving freely about the heavenly realms. The other one is where they've been locked up in what's called a bottomless pit, okay, or the, the the abyss, which is like a spiritual prison. Now that's a heavenly type of place. It's 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 in the in the heavenlies. It's the same location though as hell, which is also a holding cell for the unsaved. So for those of you who um, look at hell and might think hell is the final resting place. For, uh, for those who are unsaved or who have rejected God? The answer to that is no. Hell is a holding cell, much like the bottomless pit is for the angels. So I'll give you an analogy of our normal world. When someone is arrested for a crime, let's say someone was had done something wrong, the police arrest them, where do they put them? So they don't cause more problems before they're seen by a judge. Well, they're put in a jail. A jail is not the final place where someone goes who has to serve a you know, a, a prison sentence because a prison and a jail are two different things. A jail or a holding cell is a temporary place where those who are pretty much suspected or, or caught in the act are kept until they're seen by a judge. The judge then passes a sentence and then they are put in prison for whatever term they, they have to serve. So... Hell is like that holding cell. Hell is like that jail because they haven't been judged yet. They've been caught in the act, but they have to wait there until the final judgment. So when we talk about um, the angels being thrown into the bottomless pit until the judgment, that's exactly what that is. They're held there as well as people who have died um, uh, unsaved. They are in a holding cell. Hell is not the final place. It may be hot, may be uncomfortable, but the final resting place is actually the, the lake of fire. The lake of fire, and Revelation tells us that finally hell and death give up all the people that are in them, and then hell itself is emptied into the lake of fire after the final judgment. So angels can exist in the heavenly realm either free or locked up in a, what's called a bottomless pit. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So hell is the same place where the unsaved go, but I suspect that there are probably different compartments within it, but it's a holding cell because that's where they are reserved. That's where they're set apart for judgment to come. That's where the angels, he says, that sinned. So what was the sin though? What? Why are some angels that have fallen free to go around and cause problems and other ones have been cast down to hell? Well, we see this reason given to us in the book of Jude or the letter of Jude. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jude chapter 1, verse 6, because it gives us a pretty precise and concise explanation of why certain angels have been thrown into that bottomless pit and are are stuck there while other evil angels are still roaming around, including the devil. So it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So they've kept not their first estate. They left their own habitation. Well, what is their their own habitation? Well, their own habitation, the one that they were made for and the one that was made for them is the heavenly realm. So they left the heavenly realm, but where did they go? where did they leave they left that estate and they left their own habitation where did they go that they would be deemed um evil enough and have caused some sort of a of a crime worthy enough to be thrown into jail uh until today so that's the second place where the devils can be and that is on the earth that is the physical realm um that's where they went and they broke the rules and they did things which god deemed evil enough to cause them to be thrown into prison okay angels were not created for the physical world they were not created for here in fact by all accounts it seems that they probably find it very uncomfortable to be floating around the physical world why well, I would probably say because they have no physical bodies to do things with. They've got we 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 were created tripartite beings in God's image. So we have a physical body, we have a spirit, and we have a, a soul. Now our spirits has been uh when we were unsaved has essentially been deactivated or, or or switched off or dead. But these are spiritual beings. So when they're in the earth, they can't really affect anything. And they find it by by what the scriptures tell us uncomfortable they've got no physical bodies you can't if you couldn't pick up anything and do anything with uh with your um without having a body it probably is is very uncomfortable have you ever wondered why demons seem to be fixated around possessing people in Jesus day there seemed to be uh, quite a number of them who were possessed and i wonder whether today There are plenty of people who are possessed but we just don't necessarily see it they don't manifest in a similar type of way but in jesus day there was a number of people who were demon possessed and there are accounts of his of where he encounters them and so why are demons so fixated on possessing people which means going into them what would make that appealing for them rather than just flying around and being free and doing whatever you wanted well Because in this world, they need a shelter to exist and be comfortable. They need a shelter. And Jesus explains this to us in Matthew chapter 12. So if you've ever wondered why devils uh, go around possessing people, it's because, well, they shouldn't be doing that in the first place. It was really forbidden for them to be able to do that. But when they decide to come into this world and step out of the heavenly realm into our world, um, it's not a very comfortable place for them to be, so they they're looking for a home. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 to 45 explains this for us. Matthew 12, 43. Turn with me there while I have a drink of water. Jesus here is explaining what happens when a man is possessed by an evil spirit or by a demon. And that demon is cast out of him by whatever means. OK, so Matthew twelve forty three says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. OK, so he's been possessed by a devil. It's been cast out of him. Look what it says happens. He walketh through dry places, seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished, which sound, sounds like a nice place to move into. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And I'll explain to you why. And they entered in, and they enter in, and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall be also unto this generation. So. How does that how does how do devils end up in people well there are a number of ways that people can open a door for that devil to walk right into their home if you're involved in idolatry in witchcraft sorcery necromancy seances devil worship uh, drug taking um, where you lose uh, uh, control of your senses um, those are really good ways of actually opening up a door or leaving it unlocked and allows a devil to possibly enter in it doesn't mean that every time you do those things you'll get a devil coming in but once you do those things you're opening up yourself more and more to those things but notice how jesus describes the person as a house here as a house and so Why would he describe it in that way? So as in this physical world, when they're in this physical world, they look for a house to live in. Why do they do that? Well, the very same reason that you and I live in houses. Why don't we live outside rather than inside a house? Why is a house so necessary for us to live in? Because houses offer us protection, offer us comfort and commune. So devils look for that for this very same reason, because he explains here that once they are out, they find it dry and uncomfortable. It says literally, it says they walk through dry places, seeking rest and finding one. So they have no rest; they can't have a, they can't have a rest. They can't. Uh, they find no moisture. They find no uh, uh, means of of, uh, of to parch themselves or to or to uh, sorry to to uh, satisfy their thirst. They find nothing. So they look for that house to go into, and what's interesting, um, they go back to the same house that they went to. So we had this discussion the other day concerning demonic possession, and the question was raised, just as a side note here, whether a born-again believer can be possessed. That, That tends to come up in conversation and question quite a lot. so I want to thank Brother Tony who shared that question with us, but he already knew the answer so thanks for that. and so the answer the simple answer to whether a believer, a born-again believer, can be possessed and the answer is simply no. The reason the devil uh, that devil could go back into that house with seven other demons uh, after that person was you know, exercised was the fact that that, that house was empty. It was swept clean, and it was empty. In other words, the door was still open, but it was empty. They could just move into it without any opposition. The difference with us as believers is the scriptures teach us that when we are born again, the Bible says that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives within us. So we're not empty. We're actually indwelt. We are possessed as well. The difference with the possession is that we are possessed by the spirit of God rather than a demonic spirit. And if a demonic spirit tries to get into a house where God's Holy Spirit is, it's not going to want to get in. It's not going to want to live there. It can't live in the same place. So and remember as well that the Bible says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In other words, not even the devil, if he wanted to get in, as, as strong as he is, couldn't do that, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So as hard as they might try, and they won't want to, because there's no way a devil is going to want to live in the same place as the Holy Spirit of God, that's why a believer cannot be possessed. Sure, they can come knocking on your door, they can come, come, come pestering you from the outside, but they can't come in. As I mentioned in that class, uh, when Jesus comes to live in a person, your house, which then becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit, okay, so your house becomes, your body becomes a temple, a place where the Holy Spirit exists, is now, using uh, common terms, off the market. It's no longer on the market. It is been bought and now owned by God himself. So devils can't touch you. But let's continue with this person that was possessed. So when the devil is cast out of a person, they find this world that we live in dry and without rest. So what do they do? Well, the, the obvious thing to do is to go back and see if you can find, uh, uh, the, go back to the same house that you re, that you had before, which was comfortable for you. Why do they do that? Because it seems as if Finding a good home is difficult for them as well. They can't just jump into one person to another. there has to be some particular circumstance that have to be fulfilled so it's hard for them to find a good home so when they've got one, they may as well go back to it. but the problem with this particular fellow who was um, uh, possessed and then had his demon's ex or had his demon exercised was the fact that his door was still open that d- the devil could still get back in and the house was empty. He wasn't saved. So you may notice on this particular story that the devil then goes and takes seven devils worse than himself. So there are now multiple devils living in that one house. And why would he do that? Well, if you if there's one of you living in a house and they're trying to get you out of the house, it might be easier than if there were eight of you living in the house and the other eight were stronger than you. So I'd suspect that the reason he went went and got seven other worse devils than himself was that there is security in numbers. It also seems that in these particular instances where people are possessed by devils, that not only can there be multiple devils living in them, but these devils can actually give them special abilities. Um, And we see this in an encounter that the Lord Jesus has with a man living in a cemetery. So turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verse 27 for a moment as we look at that encounter. So Luke chapter 8, verse 27. I'll explain to you why I'm going to all this length to describe these particular things because I want us to understand the foundations of what's going on at the end, okay? So Luke 8, 27 says, And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time. So he had more than one devil living inside him for a long time and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. So devils discovered long ago that they could inhabit people and influence them and drive them, literally drive them around like a car once they had the key to get into that car. And so in this particular state, they act like a parasite living within a person, feeding off that person and causing them to do things that they would not normally have done. So I'm sure that if that man didn't have any devils within him, he wouldn't be going around naked and wouldn't be going around living in a tomb. But let's see how... These devils respond when they see the Son of God. So Luke 8 28 says, And when Jesus and when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. Who's speaking here? Well, the devils are speaking, they're speaking through this particular man, and I want you to notice they fall down before him. So even the devils have to fall down before the son of God, even in their rebellious state, because he has power over them. So let's continue. Verse 29 says, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So Jesus had already said, out. Notice for oft times it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And verse 30 says, And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there, and, and there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them, which means he allowed them. And when the devil, and, and then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake, and were choked. So, devils not only discovered that they could actually enter into that dead space, that that people. Uh, have which was their dead spirit and they can fulfill that particular thing and drive people around but they also discovered that they could actually control that person and bodily functions like their voice in this particular case and like their strength and like uh, driving them in a particular direction and in this particular case there was a legion now a legion Was literally around 5,000. So that particular number corresponds to about around the 5,000 mark and was a military term who were living in this man. So, um, and they were literally driving him mad, but giving him amazing strength at the same time. So, what's amazing to think about is they can literally have that many demons living in one person without overcrowding. So it looks as if, for whatever reason, man has an ability to hold that many demons, 5,000 of them at one particular time. And they still prefer that to being out, out and about. But have you ever wondered in this particular story why the devils didn't just ask Jesus to turn them loose? They didn't say, just turn us loose or just to turn us... No. it actually They actually say, you know, send us into that herd of swine. Um... And why would Jesus automatically choose to throw them into the abyss or the deep or that bottomless pit for being in that man? Well, probably because what they had done was worthy of being thrown into the bottomless pit for. It was that crime. Remember, the scriptures tell us that they left their first estate, which means they left where they were supposed to be, where they were designed to be. They moved into somewhere else, but they're not comfortable here because it's dry places. So what do they end up doing? They end up possessing people. And that possession seems to be a crime that they can be thrown into hell for and held there until the final judgment. And so this also gives a good idea why all those demons that will be let loose in the end would have been thrown in there in the first place. So what did they ask to be thrown into a herd of swine? Well, maybe animals may offer some temporary shelter, but the result is very different. You see, when they were, five thousand, think of this for a moment, 5,000 devils or demons were living in one man. And though they were driving him crazy, they were still able to control him to a certain extent. But once those 5,000 were thrown into a huge herd of swine, Um, they went crazy and they throw them through themselves literally off a cliff. And so it seems as if animals don't hold them very well. Now, what happened to them after that? I don't know, but this is very illustrative for us. Um, I'm telling you all of this because before the battle of Armageddon takes place, the devils, which are free at this particular time that we live in, who are living in the heavenly realm, will lose their privilege and they'll be thrown down to the earth. And at that particular point, things are going to get very uncomfortable for them because the Bible tells us that not only will they be thrown down to the earth, but they will not be able to get back into heaven. And so they will have almost no choice but to try and possess people in order for them to exist more comfortably. Because if it's going to be about a three-year period, they won't be able to be walking around for three years. They're going to have to find people to possess. And so you see this correlation between what the Antichrist does, what the false prophet does in terms of getting people marked on their foreheads to say, I'm devoting myself, I'm giving my soul to this false Antichrist and worshipping idols, which is, your open door for the devils. Once they are thrown down to the earth, they will almost have no choice but to start inhabiting people. And it's not going to be a pretty picture. So Daniel records something interesting for us in chapter twenty, uh, chapter 12 concerning this. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, because it describes the first event that I'm going to uh, share with you which is the war or the judgment in heaven first. Then comes the war on the earth, or what we call Armageddon. And the first war has to occur before the second war can actually occur. So there's a war on two fronts, one after the other. Daniel 12.1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. So Michael is the governing angel, the protector of the children of Israel, okay? Not Christians. His specific specific job is to watch over the people of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to the same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. Who are thy people? He's speaking to Daniel. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. What have the Jews got to do with this final time at the end? Because the Jews will experience a revival and they will turn to Christ. And they will be, this is why the church is taken out of the picture before God continues his program with Israel. And that's why we find the the book of Revelation doesn't speak much about the church at all. The first four chapters refer to the church and, 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 and the way Jesus is, um, is dealing with the church, and we're given examples of seven churches, possibly throughout the ages, but then the, the rest of the thing doesn't even mention the church at all. It specifically mentions Israel, the children of Israel. It mentions a number of different things that all seem to point to something going on with Israel. And so Daniel 12.1 says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, or he's standing up um, for war. And notice that he speaks of him as a great prince. You'll notice it speaks about Michael in the same terminology that speak, it's that that the, that um, that Gabriel spoke about the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Grecia. In other words, he is a governing angel. So this verse says that there will be a time of trouble that has never existed in the world before, and the children of Israel will be delivered. They'll be rescued by the archangel. Michael, because the devil will seek to destroy every believing Jew off the face of the earth. So I want to turn, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, because we see what happens with Michael at the end and how this actually comes about. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 tells us, and there was war in heaven. Now I want you to pay particular attention to that. The war is not on the earth. The war is in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the devil. And the dragon fought and his angels. So there's a war that that will occur in heaven during these last three and a half years. And the two are going at it. Michael and the angels are fighting the devil and his angels And it says that the devil and his angels prevailed not in verse 8. Now, this is the verse, or part of the verse, I want you to pay close attention to. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. Who? The devil and his angels. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, pay attention here. Verse 12 then says, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath. He's angry because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Who's the woman? Israel. Which man-child did this woman bring forth? Well, she brought forth Christ. She brought forth the man-child. Jesus is and came through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the lineage of King David. That is the woman, okay? And so the devil, when he's thrown and cast down to the earth, he says he's got a short, he knows he's got a short time. What does he do? He wants to kill the woman, which is Israel in the last days. But I want you to notice it says neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Notice the word there. There means possession. Their home was heaven. Even after they rebelled, their natural abode, their natural estate, their natural place where they were created for, which was theirs, was heaven. It was there that they were created to live in. But at this particular point, a war occurs in heaven and the devil and all of his angels are cast out into the world. Now, where can they go? After that, they can't go back. They're stuck here. Now, what are they going to do? Well, they probably don't have that many options, but they're angry because now they're confined to a place that's uncomfortable for them. And they're angry because they know they've only got a short time before their final judgment is going to come. Their final judgment means when their throne is going to be cast down And Jesus takes his rightful place as the ruler of the world. So, the devil and his angels were cast out from heaven. Where to? The earth. The accuser is cast down from heaven. And who was he accusing? He was accusing the brethren before God. Where was he accusing before the throne of God, literally in God's court. So the devil can enter God's court and accuse people of sinning or accusing believers of sinning and telling God that he should judge them. Um, But he's cast down to the earth now. And the devil and his demons are no longer loose in heaven. They are stuck On the earth and it says notice the reaction rejoice in heavens and everyone who lives in the heavens which i'm assuming all are all the saints that have gone up there all the believers including all the angels of god but it says woe to the inhabitants of the earth because he's the devil's come down to you he's angry and he knows only has a short time so how many Ever wondered how many angels have been cast down to the earth? Well, I think the Bible gives us that approximate number. Within the pages of the Bible, we are told literally how many angels God has and even how many chariots, how many things or devices they fly on or use for war God actually has. And it tells us they're actually uh, fiery. Psalm 68 verse 17 if you want to turn with me there, we'll start off with how many chariots God has. How many chariots, okay, in his armies. And it says in Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai in the holy place. So the Bible tells us that God has 20,000 chariots and thousands of angels. Now, it does tell us roughly how many angels he are. But it tells us exactly how many chariots there are. So there are at least 20,000 angels to ride those chariots. Now, what are these chariots? Well, Elisha um, and his servant saw these. Literally, God gave them eyes to see the chariots when the they was surrounded by the Syrian army. So turn me to 2 Kings 6, verse 17, because in this particular place, the, the the servant of, uh, of, of Elisha um, comes out of the house. One morning, he, he wakes up, he has a look, and he's sort of surrounded by the Syrian army who was about to do them no good. And he gets quite perturbed at this. And Elisha says, don't stress, because there are more with us than there are against us. And, Eli- and the servant goes, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you're saying. Where, where are our armies? So in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, it says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them. That's the Syrian army with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. So, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being able to see the angels and chariots of God who have come to protect you and have come to have come to a fight against the, uh, the, the, an earthly army? Uh, no doubt, in that earthly army, the Syrian army, there were net, there were, of course, there were devils that were that were were pushing them and probably involved as well. But Elisha and his servant were literally able to see the chariots of God. And so now what about the number of angels? Well, I think Revelation also gives us the number of angels and that's in Revelation 5.11. Let's have a turn with me there as we get a, a good idea about how many angels God actually has at his disposal, which will then tell us how many fallen angels there are, because we know that a third of the entire realm of angels that God created fell. So we, if we know a third fell and we know what's left, we will then be able to work out how much a third is. And so it says that in Revelation 5.11, and, and I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 And thousands of thousands now notice what he's talking about here he sees in heaven he sees the beasts the elders and angels that's not talking about people here the elders are probably people but there's only 24 of them so they're not going to make much of a difference to the overall number and the beasts we know are only four so let's put those aside for the moment because those numbers are quite small. So what's left? Well, it says that the number of angels before His throne are ten thousand times ten thousand, and then thousands of thousands. So let's go with the ten thousand times ten thousand first. That is a hundred million, and then if you have thousands times thousands, that's at least um, four million because you got at least 2,000 times 2,000. So let's say there's at least 104 million angels in heaven, at least, and probably more, but we know that there's at least 104 million angels in heaven and around and at 20,000 chariots as well. So if a third of the angels, if they're the, the faithful angels, that means if it's roughly 100 million angels, let's say there's a round number, that means... And a third of them fell that means the original number was about 150 million at least so that means there are at least 50 million fallen angels 50 million fallen angels and they are cast into the earth um, all in one go outside of their normal abode 50 million angels i wonder what they can do well they can cause a whole lot of problems. What will they do? Well, the Bible actually tells us that for five months, they're going to be tormenting people like scorpions. And what about after that, though? What are they going to try and do after they torment people for five months, making people wish that they were actually dead? Well, Revelation sixteen twelve tells us what they will do. They've been thrown down to the earth. There's at least 50 million of them and the devil leading them as well as the rulers that they've got. And they know they've only got a short time. So what are they going to try and do? Revelation sixteen twelve to 16 tells us. There it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15 then says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and and they see his shame. And verse sixteen then says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So what do all these devils do? Well, they go out into all the world, they gather the armies of the world, including the kings of the east, which include China and Russia, to invade Israel and attack Israel, to attack Jerusalem, and even battle against one another for the fight for that particular land. And ultimately, they have one purpose. They're lining themselves up there because they know that ultimately, Christ will return with his armies to that point in the world, and that Christ will literally land on the Mount of Olives and he will fight a battle. Um, with the armies, all the angels of heaven and all the, the saints of heaven coming behind him. And, mm-hmm. and what are that why are they doing that? Because this is their last itch effort to try to keep God out of this world, to finally get him out of the picture and to try to overcome their inevitable destruction and demise. The the, the con job that they've been actually playing for the last 5,000 years in ruling mankind without mankind even knowing that what's been going on in the background will finally come to an end. And so they're going to try to inspire man to, to fight against God himself. They will be the driving force. Those 50 million plus are going to be leading those armies to their ultimate destruction. So turn with me to Romans, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, because there are multiple descriptions of the armies that shall be raised in the earth in these last days, and all of them are going to be inspired by these devils. So Revelation 9 13 says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. Saying to the sixth angels, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now similar to to the previous uh, thing we read in Revelation sixteen, that the river Euphrates is dried up. Why is it dried up? So they can literally march right across it to get to Jerusalem and get to where they have to get to. So in verse fourteen, um, they the the four angels are let loose which are bound at the moment in the great river Euphrates, verse 15, and the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand, And I heard the number of them And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads and which them and with them they do hurt now what's interesting about this description that john has written for us in 90 a.d right okay so this is going right back to 90 a.d the description john gives us here is in stark contrast to the way people were normally killed by warfare in his day you see in john's day people who died from war and by armies, were generally killed by sword, spear, and arrows. This was the nature of warfare in his day. So even for the most advanced army of that day, which was the Roman army, the only time they would really use fire was when maybe they would set things alight with fire with like a, with like a, a brand of a something that, a flaming torch, or they might they might shoot a flaming arrow into a city that was surrounded by a wall, hoping that that, that arrow might set a house on light and then it would start to burn and they'd try to, and try to, um, to flush them out. But this is not saying this at all. This is saying, that the people are killed with fire and brimstone. And John describes a 200 million man army. Now, or maybe armies. Now that has not been possible. Definitely not possible in John's day, a 200 million man army. And it was not possible at least until around 1900 here. Because in 1800, The entire population of this world was one billion. So there was almost zero chance you could get 200 million fighting men to go to Jerusalem. Can we do it today? Yeah, we can. With 7 billion billion people on the planet and the wherewithal to get 200 million people to, to Israel? Yes, it's possible today. It was not possible in John's day. And on top of this, look at the way John says that people are killed. They're killed with fire and brimstone. And it says that a third part of all mankind is killed by this fire, smoke, and brimstone that comes out of the mouth of these things, these chariots. You know, that's never been possible in previous generations, really until the modern era. You know, How are almost, when you think of it, almost every modern weapon today, how is it designed to kill? They shoot guns, cannons, firing rockets, missiles, and dropping bombs from planes. So how do people die? They die with an explosion. They are killed by bullets, gunpowder, and explosions of fire and shrapnel. And John says people are killed... A third part of the people in the world are killed by fire and brimstone. John gives us a very vivid example of what he sees in this vision. Um, But it lines up perfectly with the way people are killed with modern day warfare today. And that's astounding when you think of it. Is there enough firepower in the world's armies to kill a third of all men? Well, yeah, there's enough firepower. Even without using nuclear weapons, there is plenty of firepower to kill by fire and gunpowder and bombs and missiles. But imagine for a moment, because we've seen, we've been through the last two years of a pandemic that's gone to the world, that's killed about five million people, and the world's been in, in turmoil, being turned upside down because of this, with governments trying to protect their people and do things and overdo things and all that sort of stuff. But can you imagine for a moment a war where a third of all the people in the world are killed? And, and And for those of you who know how many people there are in the world, there's more than seven billion, approaching eight billion people. So a third of that is around two and a half billion people dead. That's 2,500 million people will die because of this army which will be unleashed in the world. And who's inspiring them? Who's, being, who's possessing them? Well, you've got 50 million fallen angels who are desperate to get themselves uh, defended against God's return, against the Son of God's return. So the devils have been confined to the earth. The people of the world have, by all accounts, have worshipped the Antichrist and have had themselves marked. The people of God have been slaughtered um, because of their faith in Christ. The Jews are being persecuted and, and they've been tra- and the, the devil's trying to wipe them out. The armies of the world have converged to Jerusalem for one final conflict, which will be both a spiritual one and a physical one with the armies of hell and the antichrist aligned for one last ditch effort to keep god out and stop them from being judged and destroyed and the bell will sound for the return of the lord and so i'll close with this passage because next week i want to describe that event that occurs when the heaven opens up and Christ returns with his army, and we'll see the result of that and the rest of uh, Daniel chapter 7. But turn with me just to close, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Now, apart from this army that will converge for this final battle, Revelation six twelve gives us a glimpse of what will, this world will look like and what they will see when the sixth seal is opened. And it tells us, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, Revelation six twelve, and lo, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood. Uh, that's your sign that things are about to occur, okay? Verse 13 says, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains and the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the rocks, the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? That will be the position the world will find itself in when they literally see heaven opened and Jesus Christ standing ready to come down with the armies of heaven and they will literally want to hide themselves. And the armies that are possessed by all those fallen angels will be aligned, ready for his coming. And it will be a catastrophic event. It will be the worst day this world has ever seen there will be such bloodshed and you think about it even the third of the world dying will not be um the worst thing so as i close for the sermon today i would like to remind us that this world has been in rebellion against god from the very first fall that mankind has been in rebellion against god we have fallen in this world, and as a result of our fall and Satan's fall, and and the the rebellion in heaven, the world's people have essentially been subservient to the devil's desires throughout the ages. If this is true, then as believers, we must be fully aware that we too were once part of this ungodly. Rebellion that we too were once part of this ungodly kingdom that existed, but since our salvation, the Apostle Peter says that we are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Once we were strangers to God, we were foreigners of God's kingdom, but now we are fellow saints, we are fellow citizens. We now no longer belong to this world. We are no longer citizens in a sense of this world. We have been given a new citizenship. And we should always behave as if that was the case. We should not be drawn too much into this world and what's going on in this world. Because God has everything in control. In his own timetable. In his own power. He knows what's coming. What's coming is looks terrible. We are not there yet. We are still a ways from it, but we are in our days to look forward to our heavenly city, our heavenly country, our heavenly home, and for our King, who will come for us and who loves us and has given his own life for us that that we might be with him for eternity. Because of this knowledge, we should not be too comfortable here. Do not get too comfortable in this place but use what we have here and the time we have to reach those people that don't know him. Use your time wisely here to grow closer to him because what we will discover next week is that what we do here today and with the time we have today will determine what we do, you and me, for the rest of eternity. We will also be judged for our works. Our judgment will not consist of either condemnation or or salvation because the salvation has occurred in our lives. What we will be judged for is how faithful we have been and what we have done with the things that we have been given. And what we do later on will be determined by what we have done today. So my challenge to you is the same challenge that the Apostle Peter gives each and every one of us who are believers where he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, he pleads with us as strangers and pilgrims now to this world, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against our own soul, having your conversation, our life, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold which they shall see with their own eyes and experience glorify god in the day of visitation i pray that our lives would be exactly like this that even though there are people in our lives today who may even make fun of us and and maybe ridicule us whatever that may be i pray that our lives would be so different that even in the end they will have to admit and say yes what you said was right and the life you lived was pointing me to christ even though i didn't want to believe it you see the bible in the end tells us that every knee shall bow every fallen angel every rebellious person every person who was chosen to follow the antichrist and being been marked with him will all Stand one day before the throne of Christ and they will all fall down on their knees. So my prayer for you today is that you have already bowed the knee to him. But you will understand also how important today is that you have a a king to serve, that we have a savior to follow and that there are not many days left in which we are to glorify him in so let's glorify him with our lives let's abstain from fleshly lust let's remind ourselves about that we are no longer strangers and pilgrims to heaven but now we are strangers and pilgrims to this earth don't be surprised with any temptation or any trial or tribulation or persecution that will come our way in the future but for today serve god with all of your heart and serve your Savior, because he deserves every part of us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I pray you have a wonderful week. I pray this message has been a blessing to you, and I'm looking forward to sharing next week's message, which speaks about the glorious triumph of our Savior when he returns as the Lion of Judah into this world. God bless you. I'll see you soon.